Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Lord, we thank you so much um, that uh, we can remove the cross from our stage, but you cannot remove the cross from the center of our lives. And so we pray today um, that your cross in the book of Deuteronomy stands boldly in the midst of it. That we see your love for your people, the consequence of our sins, and the sacrifice of Jesus in our place as the primary shaping force in our life. We thank you for these words that were preached to uh, individuals, individuals who wanted to follow God um, thousands of years ago. And these words are not dead words, but they are carried by the weight of the Holy Spirit for us today. So I pray you give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in Deuteronomy 30 today. Uh, If you have a Bible, uh, you can open it. If not, we've got tables in the back. You're welcome to take one home with you. But today's sermon is about the gospel. If you've ever wondered what the center of Christianity is, this sermon is for you. If you've ever wondered the tension between your works and the grace of Jesus, this sermon is for you. If you've ever wondered what the gospel is, this sermon is for you because this sermon is about the gospel. And in a realistic way, every sermon we preach here at Sovereign Hope is about the gospel. The gospel is, as the Apostle Paul says, it is what saved you in the past, it is what causes you to stand today, and it is what will endure you into the future. The gospel is the sum and scope of the Christian life. It is not merely a doorway to it, it is the very path itself. The gospel is for new Christians, the gospel is for old Christians, the gospel is for non-Christians, the gospel is for everyone. But we must not forget that the word gospel, the Greek word euangelion, simply means good news. Which means before we see the gospel as a system of theology, before we even see gospel as it will be presented most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ, we must learn to see the gospel as good news for those who need it. And if you've been with us, specifically these last few weeks in the book of Deuteronomy, today's passage in Deuteronomy 30 is good news. It was good news for these men and women, the people of Israel, thousands of years ago, and it's good news for us today. And while this passage we're looking at is not quite the conclusion, it is Moses' pastoral climax of the sermon he began to preach 29 chapters ago. And because of that, he's getting at something drastically important in the hearts of his hearers. And up until this point in Moses' long sermon, he'd done a number of things. First, he opens up by reminding God's people, Israel, of their faithlessness and God's faithfulness. He reminds them of all the wonderful things God has done for them and all the wonderful things God wants to continue to do for them if only they would walk as God's people. What does it look like to walk as God's people? Moses says, here's this law that God gives. These are the rules and the statutes that define what it looks like to walk as God's people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the summary Moses gives of the whole law. Everything else that he will preach, 
defines this. God's people love God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. And after he defines this, he summarizes, gives a little more detail, and then he goes into 14 chapters of case law, which we finished a couple weeks ago, 14 chapters of detailed explanations of what does it look like for God's people to love God and love other people. And last week, Moses began what we're going to look at in kind of three parts, this concluding end of his sermon. That's normally where conclusions go. And last week, we saw he holds up these two realities of the law, blessings for those who obey and curses for those who disobey. And then after saying, these are the two options you have, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, Moses says to God's people, you're not going to obey. You're not going to keep God's law. Your life is not going to reap the blessing of God. Your life, your heart, your decisions are going to lead you into punishment. But last week we saw this verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that Moses concluded with where he says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. So Moses is getting at two things here. One, that God's given clear things, blessings and curses, obedience and disobedience, but there's also secret things, secret things which belong to God. In other words, Moses is already hinting that even though the clear reality of this life is twofold, blessings or curses, obedience or disobedience, life or death, those two options might not be the end there might be another way. In God's sovereign power, he makes a third way. And this not-so-secret secret is actually what unfolds in the rest of God's word. The rest of God's word from Deuteronomy onward, actually from Genesis onward, begins to define this third option that stands over and against your successes and your failures, your obedience, and your disobedience. And this third way is the way of mercy. This mercy, good news for those who know they don't measure up, is the heart of the gospel. And I believe that this passage, Deuteronomy 30, is one of the clearest presentations of the gospel that there is in the Old Testament. It relates so nearly and dearly to the gospel of Jesus Christ that its pages scream and long for Jesus. And what we're going to see today in Deuteronomy chapter 30 are four aspects of mercy. We're going to see first, we're going to see that mercy comes apart from the law. Mercy comes apart from the law. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today. And then we're going to look at kind of three follow-ups to this point. Is that God's mercy changes our heart. God's mercy draws near to us. And God's mercy calls us to respond. And our passage opens today by setting up this mercy in verses 1 through 3. And when all these things come upon you, what are all these things? These people just heard Moses preach on blessings for obedience and a long extended portion on curses of disobedience. Curses where other nations would come and conquer them and carry them away from God's land. Curses where all the promises of God were undone because the people chose not to fear God but to follow false gods. 
And here Moses says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And so when, by their own choice, by their own sin, by the failings of their own heart, these people find themselves in exile, not in the land, not as God's people, in God's place, in God's presence, but scattered in judgment, there will be a time where they return to God and God has mercy on them. And this is where we see our first point today. And this is where the marvel of mercy begins to manifest itself. And that's that this is mercy apart from the law. Mercy apart from the law. This offering of mercy is already spectacular. If you aren't familiar with the storyline of the Bible, it's sometimes easy to think that God's relationship towards humanity has always been law-based. Always been this code of commands that we are to follow if we want to be with God. But that's not true. God made promises with several individuals in the Old Testament far before the law was ever given. In creation, God made an implicit command with Adam and Eve. Covenant. They were to be his people in his place, in his presence in the Garden of Eden. Why? Not because Adam and Eve deserved it. They weren't even alive. God created them because God wanted to invite people into his glory to experience his love. Because he is a good God and he wanted good things for us. And then sin ruined it. Adam and Eve rejected God. They thought they could find things apart from God. But even after sin ruined the garden and Adam and Eve were kicked out. And after there was a flood where God judged the world for its sin, God said to Noah and made a covenant. He made a promise. He says, I will never again wipe out the entire world because of their sin. Why? Not because humanity earned it. In fact, the first thing Noah did after God made this covenant was show that sin wasn't dealt with. He got drunk and pranced naked through, through his tent and passed out. It wasn't because humanity deserved it, but because God had a desire to redeem people from sin. And then God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to create this people that I'm going to bless, and you are going to be the father of it. Your, your children will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Why did God choose Abraham? What did Abraham do to earn God's blessing? Nothing. God made a promise to Abraham because God wanted to make a promise to bless people, and God was going to do it. So why did the law come? These promises existed far before the law. Well, if you've been reading in our Bible reading plan, you've been reading through Genesis and Exodus, and we see pretty clearly why the law had to come. Because even though God freely gave himself in a covenant of promise and blessing to his people, God's people had a track record of doing everything they could to run from it, of messing things up, of ruining things along their way. They aren't able to stay inside of God's promise. In fact, we see them running from it, taking their future in their own hands instead of trusting in God. The people couldn't stay in the lane of God's promise. And so God was going to bring the law 
as he brought them out of slavery. It was the people's sin that brought them into slavery, and it was God's law that was going to help define them coming out of slavery. The law came after God's promise and acted as a sort of bumper system in the bowling alley of God's covenant. People were apparently, if you were been reading in Genesis, completely unaware that the gutters are dangerous, that they don't ever get you where you want to go. And yet time after time, whether it's Abraham or whether it's Isaac or whether it's Jacob, God's people found themselves in the gutter, moving away from where God wanted them to be. So he brought the law. And the laws were these bumpers that said, nope, this is a boundary. Turn back. There's danger out here. Stay in the line of God's promise. And that's what the law was meant to do. It was meant to keep people in the blessing of the promise. The law came to define the edges of the promise. If you obey and you stay in the lane, you'll end up where God wants you to be. But if you end up in the gutter, you'll be far from it. And it is a dangerous place to be. The law brought definition to a truth that existed long before the law ever came. And that truth is this, that a life lived in God's promise is the best life you could ever have. And a life lived outside of God's promise is a dangerous one. The law outlined blessings for obedience and dangers of sin, but here God gives mercy to people who have jumped the bumpers. And what's amazing is the law doesn't provide mercy. That's not the point of the law. The law didn't come to mitigate mercy. This mercy that God gives in Deuteronomy 30 verse 3 is mercy apart from the law. It is mercy according to the promise of the God who gave the law. There's nothing in the law that stipulates that God is obligated to accept people back into his grace when they have sinned against his command. It's not obligated that God would be merciful to those who have turned away. But because God is a gracious God, because God is a promise-keeping God, because God desired a people who would be free from sin, who would live in his presence, God made a way for mercy, not according to what the people would do, but according to what God would do. And this is the wonder of it. And this is why we need to slow down and understand this mercy apart from the law, because if we understand it wrongly, we can think that, again, it comes down to us fulfilling the law, that we would do something to merit God's mercy. Is it conditional on you? In one sense, yes. In another sense, not at all. So where do we see this tension? Well, we see this all through the first 11 verses, or 10 verses of chapter 30, and that's what I want us to read right now. And when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. So you hear this, there's this idea of returning. It's returning back to the land. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord, and keep all his commandments that I command you today. 
The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your father's When you obey the voice of the Lord to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So is mercy conditional? Yes. So Moses said three times in there, right? When you turn to God, when you begin to obey, then I will have mercy on you. It's conditional on what is literally repenting, turning from your sin and going instead to God and loving him with all of your heart and all your soul. It's merely that simple. Turn and receive mercy. So you would think that at the first sign of punishment, God's people would turn and receive mercy. But they don't. Even when they're subjected to judgment, The people's desire to turn is never universal. It's always complicated. It's never corporate. And here we see a problem. The answer is simple. Turn and receive mercy. The problem is God's people don't like acting like God's people. The summary of the law was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so it starts inward and it works from the heart to the hands to the might. But inside of Israel in this time, there's always this problem of those who found their belonging to Israel in their physicality and those who found their belonging in Israel due to their spirituality or their relationships. Because what they prioritized during this time was all the externals of the law. They ate the right food, they wore the right clothes, they showed up at the right events, they came to church on time. All of those things they did. But they were spiritually not belonging to God. They physically looked the part, but they spiritually did not belong. Physically, they looked like Israel. They were circumcised, they had the right clothes, they went to the right places, but spiritually their hearts did anything but love God. God. Have you ever considered that? What is it that God counts when it comes to belonging to him? Is it what you do, where you go, and what you wear? Or is it the things that no one can see? Paul picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 2, where he says this, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is the circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise, that's the one who is meeting the law, is not from man, but from God. In other words, Paul is saying that for anyone to belong to God, it does not go from the outside in. It's not church attendance, it's not Christian community that makes you belong to God. Instead, it's from the inside out. It's from the circumcision of the heart that God would change your heart. And at times in Israel's history, we see that there are parts of Israel, that spiritual part of Israel that showed true heartfelt repentance. And because of that remnant that believed, God kept his promise, even to an Israel which on the whole was faithless 
and didn't keep God's law. But as a whole, during the Old Testament, we see God's people constantly choosing to rest in the physical markers of belonging and not the relational markers of belonging. The problem was their hearts didn't want to love God. They wouldn't want to turn. But look at what God said in verse 6. And the Lord your God, he will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring. And what's the response? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So how are God's people to receive mercy? They're to turn and to love God. But what if God's people don't want to turn and they don't want to love God? God's going to do something. God's going to circumcise their heart. God is going to cause their desires to be wholly pure to him. He will change their spiritual anatomy so that they will be able to turn to God. They would desire God and they would receive his mercy. And this act where God circumcises not the outward flesh but the inward heart is called the new covenant. And this is what the Old Testament is always looking for. Look at what was spoken of hundreds of years later by the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses, or chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So what does it mean when we understand this new heart, the law is not going to be applied from the outside in, but from the inside out, he's going to write it on their heart, and it's going to grow out from there. But I love when it talks, it says, no one will teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord. What does that mean? Does that mean that when we come to church, we don't talk about knowing Jesus at all? No, it's prophesying this time where this physical and the spiritual Israel are no longer divided. Everyone who belongs to the Lord knows the Lord. You don't have to go to someone who claims to believe in God and say, no, God, brother, you obviously don't know him because those who belong to the Lord are those who know God. Belonging to God means knowing God. And this is the heart of the covenant that God gave to us. To belong to God is to relationally know God. And when does he make this happen? When does this divide between our outward, uh, bring the law from the outside, when is it met by the law that comes from the inside? Well, this is met at the cross of Jesus. Look at how the Apostle Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, he's speaking to believers, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now listen here. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, it's the cross of Jesus which says, you belong to God by a heart that is changed by God. You see that mercy is is grace twice over. There are two aspects of grace inside of mercy. The first is that God would give it. And the second is that God would cause us to desire it. That is, mercy is grace that is not only offered by God, but it is grace that is applied by God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mercy really changes you. It doesn't just change potential outcomes. It changes you. You are changed by mercy. Faith in Jesus Christ is the greatest miracle you will ever know because it is the complete and total act of God made accessible through mere faith in Jesus Christ. Faith and repentance gets us the miracle of grace being offered and grace being applied. And this is where we see the second point today, is this mercy apart from the law is mercy that changes our hearts. The primary result of mercy is a changed heart. Because the problem for each of us is, whether we were listening to Moses on the shores of the Jordan River, whether we were in Colossae reading Paul's letter, or whether we're here today, is that we have bad hearts. Why don't people respond to a message so simple as turn and be saved? Because we don't want to. Because our hearts are wicked. Because we desire things which are not God. Think of it this way. Imagine if I were to offer all of you in here free memberships to a gym. It'd be an extremely gracious offer, one that I probably shouldn't be doing while we're trying to raise $2 million for a building fund. But let's say I do that. You all received it. You all have wonderful access to this free gift that I've given to you. But if your couch is your best friend, it doesn't matter how free that gym is you're not going to get up and go. It's too costly. It doesn't fit with what our hearts desire. If all God did was, if all God did in sending Jesus to die for our sins was to say, here's mercy. It's free. If you want it, go and get it. What human history would show is that even though it's the most incredibly gracious offer, even to have it offered because of the nature of our sin, we simply wouldn't be interested. Our hearts do not desire to please God. They do not desire to turn to God. But here we see that not only does God provide a membership to this gym, but he actually changes our hearts so that we would desire to go in. That we would desire to turn from what brings death and to choose life. Just as God created out of his own desire to create, Just as God promised out of his own desire to enter into a covenant, God converts hearts out of his desire to convert hearts. Conversion is absolutely necessary for salvation. And we mean conversion as more than just affirmation. 
Conversion, what we see in the New Testament, is a life that has turned. It is going a different direction. Uh, we, we looked at this in terms of the law, those four aspects. It changes our sexual life, our cultural life, our religious life, and our, sec- our family life. All of those things are converted by the gospel of Jesus. But what we see here is that conversion and the whole weight of it already and only comes from the power of God. He cuts away the false affection of our dead hearts so that we belong to him at a heart level. God's grace in your life goes far deeper than you could ever know. Do you realize that to respond to Jesus in faith and repentance is to realize you are responding to something where God was already out in front of you? God was already working the miracle of regeneration on your heart by breathing life into dead hearts. We just watched Narnia with my kids last night. There's a scene where Aslan goes to all of the the, the heroes of Narnia who are frozen in stone and he breathes on them and they melt back to humanity. That's what happens when we're saved is God breathes on us while we were still stone. And then our hearts respond and follow the cry of Aslan wherever he asks us to go. In fact, the truth is, all of God's mercy highlights the way in which God seeks us out. The ESV translates the phrase in, that's the the version of the Bible we're using here, in verse 31, it says, When you're scattered among the nations and when you call all these things to mind, you'll turn and repent. But other translations offer uh, something which I think better communicates the phrase, at least the, the heart behind what's going on here. It says this, when you're scattered among the nations, you will come to your senses. What a wonderful description of conversion. Conversion is just coming to your senses. It's realizing the rawness and the reality of sin in this world. Conversion is the moment where we come to our senses and realize we can't do anything to save ourselves. It is the bucket of cold water which wakes up our sleepy souls and calls us to turn to Jesus. But even this coming to your senses is an act of grace. In Ezekiel 36, the prophet Ezekiel is also talking about this new covenant which is coming. And look at the order of this coming to your senses, where we're going to begin in verses 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The first part of verse 29 says this. And I will deliver you from all uncleanness. And then look at verse 31. Then, that is after he has given us a new heart, that is after he has cleansed us, then I will make, or then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves and your iniquities and your abominations. Coming to your senses in conversion is a response to what God has already done in your heart. You see, to be saved by God through Jesus Christ is to be given a mercy apart from the law, which highlights the lengths at which God went to seek you out and to work in your heart. In 2018, the world watched with anxiety as 12 youths from a Thailand soccer team were attempted to be rescued out of a cave system that they went into that quickly flooded after they were in it. The rescue operation demanded the world's most elite divers and military minds 
from all around the globe. They came to Thailand and they had to figure out how to navigate through this treacherous cave system where they're miles away underground. And I get claustrophobic in cul-de-sacs. And I was watching what they're doing here. And these are the world's most expert divers wedging themselves through caverns, which I would die in if there was oxygen. And they are underwater without visibility, crawling on their stomachs so deep into the earth's core that they had to jerry-rig zip lines with oxygen tanks because people went further than their oxygen tanks could. And then in the miracle where they found this soccer team, they then had to figure out the greater challenge, which is how do you get 12 terrified kids out of a cave structure? It took the world's most talented divers everything they had to get through it. It seemed impossible. And yet, it's a picture of the resiliency of hum humanity in figuring it out and going great distances. After that, the New York Times interviewed uh, a former U.S. Navy dive officer, and he asked if American troops, the, the, the newspaper asked if American troops trained for this. And he said no, simply because it's too dangerous. It's too dangerous to even train for rescue operations like that. But the truth is this Thai rescue operation and the heroics of humanity are nothing compared to the lengths and the complexities which God went through to save you. Right now, God knows exactly where you are. And he's not intimidated when it comes to taking you out in a good way. If you've ever been unamazed at your salvation, I grew up in a Christian home. As a dad now, I'm so grateful for that. But there are times where I was unamazed at my salvation. It's like some people, God went through the cave, and other people, God just went next door. If you've ever felt alone and beyond God's care, look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. The truth is no one is next door to a God like this. Our sins have buried us far from him, under his law, in danger of death. But God sought to bring his people back by sending his own son into the cave, knowing full well that the depth at which we ran from God demanded the death of his son. Someone needed to die in the cave. And the gospel is, is that Jesus died for us so that we could come out. This is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us back to God. The gospel brings us all the way back to the God who promised himself to his people. The promise that Moses spoke of, the promise Jeremiah spoke of, the promise Ezekiel spoke of. It makes us his people at the cost of his son so that we might be his children despite the length at which our sin drove us from him. 
And here's the wonderful kicker. The gospel is always grace upon grace upon grace, and we'll never understand it. Here's the thing. Not only did God offer mercy, not only did God apply mercy, but God has told us about it. Do you ever stand in awe of that? You see, the biggest challenge to agnostics who say, oh, there might be a God, we just can't know, is the fact that God's yelling at them in his word. God has revealed himself. It sounds humble to be agnostic and to say, we just can't know. But that humility quickly turns into arrogance when God says, here I am. I've spoken to you. To reject this is not humility. It is arrogance. And God broke the silence for us. God did not speak to simply hear his own voice. God spoke so that we would hear and we would respond. That's the beauty of God's revelation, is that he has made himself known. And this is our next point today, is that mercy draws near to us. In God speaking and in God acting, we know that God is a God who wants to draw near. Read with me verse 11 through 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart so that you can do it. Moses is reminding God's people in this moment, at the conclusion of the law, of the grace of the law. Yes, at times this law will be hard to keep. Yes, for you Christians, the life of following God will be hard to keep. But you can keep it, says Moses. It's not hard. What do you mean it's not hard? There's 14 chapters of case law in this section. Let me explain it to you this way. Well, my wife and I, we do lots of premarriage counseling. We love premarriage counseling. Um, it's, there's nothing more important outside of your understanding of the God who saved you than a sober mind of entering into marriage with the person you'll spend the rest of your life with. It's so important. It needs the gospel. And so we do that. In engagement, our minds try to justify all sorts of things. And so one of the things you always talk about is like, how are people to stay sexually pure inside of engagement? And it's really simple. The best way to stay sexually pure inside of engagement is to not do anything sexually impure inside of engagement. That's it, right? It's that simple. Just don't do the things that are impure and do the things that are pure. It's not that you don't understand it. It's not that you can't do it. It's what? That you don't want to do it. It's that you think that you could experiment outside of what God has given to us for our good and you could find something better. Look at that last week. That's at the root of all sin. All sin says, I will be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And that's why God has to do more than just give us the law. He has to change our hearts to follow the law. And that's what Moses is saying here. You can do it. You just won't do it. Not apart from God changing your heart. But this is where Moses says, I've brought it here for you to see. Here it is. This is the wonder of it. You don't need experience to find out what pleases God, what brings you the blessing. It's right here. God has given it to you so that you would know and you would keep it. God did all the work. Here it is. Eat. Eat and enjoy what God has brought to you. Paul picks up on this theme 
in Romans chapter 10. And listen to the way in which he parallels this passage. Beginning in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. What is this word? It is the word of faith we proclaim to you. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Paul here takes the thrust of what Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy 30 and he applies it to the clear fullness of what it was meant to be seen in light of, which is the gospel. And he says that when you come to faith, when you hear the message of the gospel by faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness by faith, you don't get to say, hey, who's, get, who's, the, one, who's the one of you that's going to go to heaven and convince Jesus to come down? Because Jesus has already come down. Which of you is going to be the one who's going to be so motivated, the pastor of all pastors, the spiritual zealot of all spiritual zealots, who's going to go down to the grave and bring Jesus up? Jesus already freely offered his life. And he was raised by the power of God. See, Christianity is not magic. We don't summon Jesus magically to save us. Jesus has acted on his own volition in fulfillment of the God who has made to us a promise. And Jesus applies the promise. Instead of summoning Jesus, what do you do? Paul says, you believe it. It is near you. It is in your mouth. It is on your heart. You believe that Jesus has done everything you needed to do to fulfill the law. And you simply need to repent and believe. And you will be saved. But still, it sounds simple, but we wrestle with it, don't we? We are so prone to law-keeping, both outside of Christianity and inside of Christianity, that we can say, yes, hallelujah, for grace and grace alone. But how can I continue to earn this grace? (laughs) We probably don't use that kind of language because we get it. But don't we live our lives in ways like we actually need to maintain this grace? We actually need to earn a second portion of it? My son has gotten to this stage in life. He's going to be the world's greatest speculative theologian because he just thinks of these impossible hypothetical situations and quizzes me. You guys will never quiz me like my son quizzes me. I had to give my statement of faith when I was candidating here, and Owen would have ripped it to shreds. Um, And none of you said boo. So anyway, um, we're driving uh, home from school one day, and Owen was like, Dad, what happens when you sin in heaven? I was like, well, Owen, there's, there's not any sin in heaven, so you can't sin in heaven. He's like, yeah, 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 but what happens if you sin in heaven? I was like, well, I, I mean, there's... And so I start to, like, logically get there with him. I'm like, well, there's no judgment in heaven, but there's no judgment because there's no sin. There's no, there's no sin in heaven. He says, yeah, I get that. But what if you actually sinned in heaven? And I was, like, a little bit frustrated. And I was like, it, it, you, you can't sin in heaven. If you sin in heaven, it's not heaven. In heaven, there's no sin, the Bible says. Like, God has redeemed us completely from sin. Therefore, it can't be heaven. To which he said but what if you do? (laughs) And you see, don't we 
daily ask God that same silly hypothetical and the impossibility of it. When we say to God things like, yeah, I know it's, it's grace, but isn't it grace plus like zealous heartfelt worship? Paul says, no, that's, that's not grace. No, I, I, I get, like grace is freely given and Jesus freely gave it, but if I like don't read my Bible for like three months, Paul's like, no, you don't, this is grace. Yeah, I, right, grace, I get it, I know. But if I were to say like grace and intense moments of deep personal worship all the time, loathing of my sins, that's what saves me, right? And Paul is like, no, you can't go to Jesus. You can't bring Jesus up. Jesus did all of it for you. It is grace and nothing more. If it was grace and something else, it is no longer grace. It is grace that saves you. And we simply respond to grace by turning to Jesus. And as we continue to ask those silly hypotheticals to Jesus in our heart, what happens is we burden ourselves once again with the weight of the law. And we start asking questions like, am I worshiping enough? Am I giving enough? Am I reading enough? Am I doing enough? Am I obeying the law enough? Charles Spurgeon says it this way. Like the fascination that attracts the gnat to the candle that burns its wings, people by nature fly to the law for salvation and cannot be driven from it. We cannot get men away from it, even though we show them how sweetly Jesus stands between them and it. Brothers and sisters, this third way of mercy is mercy in Jesus Christ that we no longer rest on our works, no matter how spiritual those works might be. We rest on the completed work of Jesus, and we simply receive them by faith. If you're a Christian who has been burdened by maintaining your salvation, by your efforts, this is how near rest is to you. It is in your mouth. It is on your hearts. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and you can rest. Paul and Moses both emphasize the nearness of God to his people in his gospel. And this is true for all of us. The gospel and salvation is so incredibly near. For a spring break trip once, me and some friends went to uh, Yosemite National Park and we got there late and the campgrounds were closed. So we spent the night in the parking lot. And uh, four of us slept in the cab of a truck, and then one dude slept in the back of the truck with all of our gear and all of our goodies. You can imagine the emotion that man had when we woke up the next day, and a few dozen feet from us, a grizzly bear had completely ripped the doors off of a car to get a candy bar. And here he was sleeping like an oversized Twinkie with goodies sprinkled all around him, Mere yards away. He had no idea how near the bear was to him. If you're a non-Christian in here today, if you're a non-believer, we are so glad you're here. But I want to warn you, you have walked dangerously close to your salvation. You have come dangerously close to a God who is the seeker of all seekers. In Acts 17, Paul is writing to Greeks who do not know the gospel. And he says, this God is not far from any one of you. 
How do you know that God is not far from you, even if your sins are many? How do you know God is not far from you, even though you might wrestle with doubt? How do you know God is not far from you, even though you might feel you have everything you need in life already? Because right now you are hearing the proclamation of the gospel, and there is no way to get to this God apart from that gospel. Where the gospel of grace is proclaimed, the nearness of salvation encroaches upon you like a bear that seeks to break us down and call us to himself. I pray that it might consume you today. That you might turn and repent. That you might see there's nothing you can do except what Jesus has already done for you. And the rest of your life is a wonderful response to that. Because Moses, as the preacher, as the pastor, is after a response. Let's see this in verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob to give to them. And here is our last point this morning is that mercy calls us to respond. Mercy calls us to respond. As a father, I have wandered into this wonderful stage of life where I have a divinely appointed right to any food that is on any of my child's children's plate at any point in time. And so there are times where I'll exercise that right, uh, much to their chagrin, and they will say, Dad, that's mine. And I always say to them, I'm checking it for poison. I want them to know this food is safe to eat. My daughter always said poison, and so it's like I always say, I'm checking it for poison. And uh, the point is here, is that Jesus and the cross have proven that sin and disobedience is poison. It has shown the weight of sin. But it also proves by the power that raised Jesus from the dead that there is life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear this. There is nothing more that God can prove to you about his love for you, about the wages of sin, about his zeal to prosper you, than he has already proven on the cross of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more for God to prove than what he has already proved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look back at this astounding truth in verse 9. 
the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. Listen here. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. If our salvation is according to the law, there's no reason for God to delight. That's a transaction. How many of you had cashiers delight when you bought things from them this week? What allows God to take delight in the salvation of sinners? In that it's a free offering of his grace that he would desire to win you through Jesus Christ. God delights in saving his people through the gospel. Why wouldn't we run to that God? Why wouldn't we trust that Jesus? Because here's the truth. If you are not a believer, you need to repent. You need to be saved and you should want a God. You cannot invent a God more loving than this God. But for those who have been saved by Jesus, our works didn't save us, but our works do not end. Look at what he says in verse 20. For those who have chosen life, what does it look like? Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. What is our response to the gospel of grace? Love, obey, and endure. Brothers and sisters, the sum of our life comes down to the way in which we glorify God as we fulfill his mission in this world. And that could sound so ominous that we don't even know where to start. But here Moses gives you a starting point. Love God with the heart that he has changed. Obey this God who has shown us that his commandments are nothing more than grace and cling to this God in all things because we know that he and he alone can provide us life. While each of these responses are responses that consciously take effort, they are all responses which rely on the mercy and grace which God has already done. We cannot move past his grace even in responding. We love because God in his mercy loved us when we were yet sinners. We obey because God in his grace has proven that his commandments are not burdensome and they lead to joy and joy abundantly. And we hold fast to Jesus because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has shown that Jesus will hold fast to us. So what is our response to this gospel of mercy, to this third way of salvation? Choose life. Turn and repent and spend the rest of your life in the umbrella of grace, loving, obeying, and clinging to the gospel which has saved us. Let's pray. Lord, you must circumcise our hearts. For those in here who are resonating at all with this gospel, may they rejoice that it is not by the power of their efforts or their intellect or their might that they see this, but it is by the wonderful, undeserved, electing grace of Jesus that has rendered dead hearts alive in the gospel. Lord, may we not forget the extent to which you went on the cross to save us. And because of that, may we realize that there is nothing in this world who has promised goodness to us like you have.
There is nothing that loves us like you have. There is no more lovely action in this world than obedience to you. And there is no more loving hope than the hope that comes for those who wait and hold fast even in this life. May we be a church that in the moment of salvation and the years to come, we prove to be those who choose life. Amen.